left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. And so when we come in and buy a park, one of the first things we do a lot of times, honestly, is it's as simple as like, we got to make sure it's on Google Maps. We got to have a Facebook page. We got to have a website. And then we have an online booking system where people can book online instead of having to call in on the phone. So believe it or not, that is a major value add that we can do literally overnight. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Ryan Gibson from Spartan Investment Group, and you're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm excited today to have Robert Preston with us. He is the co-founder of Climb Capital, specializing in buying and selling RV parks. He searches for and acquires value-add properties that produce a durable yield through the life of the investment. Robert, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Hey, Jim. Really appreciate it and really kind of honored to be on this podcast. You guys have a really big group and I'm excited to hear, you know, learn about you guys' group and share. Yeah, great. We are excited because we're going to be talking about RV parks today and that's a new asset class and there's a lot of chatter in in our community. But the way I want to start out is if you could tell us your financial journey, how you got into real estate, then I think you went to multifamily and then how did you end up in RV parks of all places? We'd love to hear the story. Man. Okay. Well, stop me if I start rambling too long. It's a little bit of a story. So for me, it actually started in Afghanistan. And so 2012, I'm a Marine Corps pilot or was a Marine Corps pilot. I was flying the Osprey there in Afghanistan in my second combat tour. And about midway through that deployment, had uh, several scary nights and just lots of close calls associated with the combat side of it. And really that gave me an opportunity to evaluate my life. So coming out of there, big three decisions and changes for me. One, I'm a Christian, so I always put it out there, but kind of dedicated my life back to Christ. Two was to stop messing around and marry the woman I'd always loved, Misty. And so she's now my wife. Got that other thing. And third was maybe there's a different way to make a living than getting shot at. And so that's how it began from the real estate side of it. So from there, read whatever books I could get my hands on, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Art of the Deal, 
investing for dummies literally was one of them. And came back, started wholesaling houses, didn't have any cash, didn't have any credit. Well, credit was okay. Didn't have any cash, right? And negative net worth. So wholesaling houses, built some capital, started flipping some of those houses, continued to flip houses. And then 2013 is where I linked up with Jeremy and my co-founder here of Climb Capital in flight school, or we came back to instruction via flight school. And so he had just started getting investing well. And we said, hey, why don't we try to do the same thing? And so we did. So our first commercial deal was a 16-unit mobile home park. And that went well. And then we started buying distressed apartment complexes. So our first apartment complex was a 60-unit apartment complex that we bought in receivership or foreclosure out of the bank. Really distressed, turned around, got that done, and then continued to do that. And so continued to buy mobile home parks and basically distressed workforce value-add, class C-type multifamily stuff. Did that all the way up through 2020. Summer of 2020 rolls around. I leave active duty of the Marine Corps, basically go full-time into running this investment business. And of course, the pandemic hits and lots of things happen. And so for me, really finishing a career as a pilot, one of my goals was to buy an RV and travel for a couple months, take the family, right? Wife, dog, golden retriever, four kids, load up and go. So (laughs) finished up the Marine Corps, did that, and kind of fell in love, honestly, with the product as in RVer, I fell in love with the RV lifestyle. And coincidentally, we had just bought our first RV park in early 2020. On that vacation, we'll call it the uh, retirement trip there, although I'm not that old. On the retirement trip there, well, I found another park to buy. So we ended up buying that on vacation, getting under contract, it comes here. And so to make the long story long here, we came back and sat down with Jeremy and said, hey, we are seeing the prices of multifamily get kind of ridiculous. We are seeing the competition, really big uptake in buyers. The cap rates don't make sense anymore. The market doesn't make any sense anymore. Eviction moratoriums, all this type of stuff. Like this is maybe not the best place for us to be putting a lot of effort into. And so we made a hard pivot and said, there's no reason that we can't apply the whole syndication principles and our business model to RV parks as an investable asset class just like we were doing multifamily and mobile home parks. And so we made a pretty hard pivot to move into the RV park space. So I'll stop there. That was quite a bit and let you. That's fantastic. First of all, of course, thank you for your service. That means a lot to all of us that you are out there protecting the nation. So thank you for that. But getting back into real estate, how did you first decide real estate was going to be? I know you read the books and everything like that, but how did you get to the books? How did you figure out, hey, I got to do something different I got to tell you, there's other things you can do besides, you know, getting shot at or real estate. There's a bunch in between. So how did you find real estate? Well, I always tell everyone, I'm not like the smartest guy. I'm not the brightest guy, right? So for me, it's, I try to find things, you know, I'm in Afghanistan. All right, what's a different way to make a living? Well, every rich person I know or wealthy person I've ever read about has something to do with real estate. Let's start there. So that's literally the why real estate was. All the rich people I knew had something to do with real estate. I figured that was probably a logical place to start. So. Just copy and that paste. That makes total it. sense to me. I mean, that's how a lot of people get started, right? Because if you look around, they're really, if you want to build wealth, if you look at the wealthy people, they either are in real estate or they own a business. They're not working for a business. They own one or they own real estate. So I think that makes sense to me completely. Talking about those first two parks. So you get the whole family, you go on a little RV trip. And yep. as you're cruising around, you just decide, hey, I'll buy this one. I'll buy that one. In 2020, we went on an RV trip as well, pandemic trip kind of thing, but we came home and we didn't own any of the RV parks that we stayed at. So can you explain 
How does that happen? And your family's on the trip and dad's out buying RV park. How'd you do yeah. that? Yeah. So as my wife would probably criticize me and she would say anything's for sale for me and always trying to make a deal. So I love deals. I would flip a lawnmower if I could just for the fun, just to make some money off of it. So to answer your question, so the first park we bought, the very first one was brought to us by accident, essentially. And that was not on the trip. But the first park was brought to us because someone thought it was a mobile home park. And so they, hey, you guys buy mobile home parks. You want to look at this? I said, sure. I looked at it. And that park was a very simple park. It was 36 pads, but it was run like a mobile home park. All annual rentals, just people happen to live in there. And so that very first one for us was honestly like, we don't necessarily know how to do this, but this is close enough to what we've been doing. It's a price point that makes sense. The cash flow makes sense. Let's just buy it and figure it out. So that was the very first one. So we just bought it and learned on our own dime on that one. It was a small price point. I think we paid 550000 for it. And then we ended up selling it this year for $1.2 million. So that was a good turnaround. Yeah. The second part, the one we found on the trip, was honestly, it's just my habit. Like if, if you own real estate, I'm probably going to ask you if you want to sell it. And so we're there. The kids are playing, doing the campfire thing. The owner, which is fairly common, ran the park. So she's there and older lady, really nice older couple and she's giving the kids popsicles and they're running around and having a good time. And we're just talking and they're like, Hey, you want to sell the park? She goes, well, actually, yes, it's for sale and it's under contract. I said, okay, well, when's it supposed to close? And she gave me a date. It was about 15 days from when we were there. And I said, uh, okay, appraisal good, survey's good, et cetera. Oh, well, I don't know. I haven't heard anything on that. I was like, so that's when me, you know, kind of the antennas went up. I said, well, you haven't seen a surveyor. Is a title search done? I'm assuming you're getting some pre-closing documents. No, no, no. And so I said, all right, well, here's probably what's happening. Probably someone put this thing under contract. They're trying to find another buyer. They're trying to get the assignment fee and they're going to resell it. If that doesn't work, doesn't close, here's my name. Here's my number. Please call me. And so that's what happened. 15 days later, we're still on the trip. I get the call. Hey, this closing's not going through. Do you still want it? I said, yes. And how did you figure out the economics? Because I get it. It's maybe similar to multifamily in that people are spending the Mm -hmm. night in a property you own or on a property you own, but it's so different. So how did you figure out, yeah, this is a good deal? Because you're buying a business a little bit Mm -hmm. more than real estate, right? It's an operating business. Absolutely. So this is another example. And I want to make sure this is... I kind of point this out, like this is not the typical type of business or type of park we buy, but this is another example where I was buying 30 acres on a lake right off the interstate, just south of Cincinnati. I had three cabins. It was 40 some sites, the clubhouse, all that stuff. I know what I was paying as a customer and I was able to buy that for, I think, $700,000. And so this is kind of one of those ones where it's like, you just know purely from just common sense that it's worth what they're. But to answer your question a little bit more specifically, we evaluate it very similar as to multifamily. What's the rents? What's the vacancies? What's the expenses? What's the NOI? And then we put a cap rate. The cap rate's a little bit higher than we'd use for a multifamily, but it's really kind of going back to the fundamentals of the economics as well. And I've heard you say RV parks are the next biggest opportunity in yeah. real estate, right? So explain that. Why is this such a great opportunity? Okay. Yeah. So here's my theory. If you'll kind of go on a trip with me, if we look at any asset class, it has similar stages. And so let's take apartments as an example, right? We're all pretty familiar with apartments. 
So if we look at history, we have the industrial revolution. We brought people back into a city, into or the invention of a city essentially, because people had to live close together to go to the factories. And because of the lack of housing, we started putting houses on top of each other. We literally created the apartment complex. And so that was essentially what we call a new invention. And then it became more and more, uh, we built more and more, we developed more and more. And now, you know, it gets to the point today where it is essentially a commodity. It is just a tradable asset that is replaceable. And so we see that in mini storage, except for that timeline is about a hundred years later, right? We now have suburbs because of vehicles that can have transportation. So now we have suburbs and we have all this stuff because we're a wealthy nation. We got to have a place to put it. And so 2000-ish, we start seeing mini storage pop up everywhere. And now that's probably to a point that is a commodity. And so for us, our hypothesis is basically World War II. We come back from World War II successful. We have the baby boomer generation coming out of that. And really, we have the invention of the SUV, like a vehicle that can go off-road and the idea that we want to explore America and we start making campers at a mass scale and RVs, et cetera, right? And so that's, again, about 50 years past where the mini storage timeline is. And it brings us all the way up to the present day where now it is becoming a widely popular activity. There were or are RV parks developed, but there's not that many developed at a mass scale like you would see mini storage or apartment complexes, but it's a cultural shift. And so we feel like we're kind of at that beginning phase of the institutionalization or commoditization of RV parks. And you'll see a lot of them being developed over the next 10 to 20 years. And we'll start seeing more investors like us coming into it and more institutions and REITs and Wall Street, et cetera. So that's why I think it's the next thing. Next best thing is it's following a very predictable path that we've seen in other asset classes. And I'm excited to kind of be trying to stay in front of that as far as possible. And we touched on this a little bit, but how does your expertise that you developed in doing class C multifamily and mobile home parks, how does that expertise transfer to RV parks? Because one of the biggest risks that I've seen as a passive investor is when I find an operator and they're really good at one thing, right? They're really yeah. good at multifamily. And then they find something else. They chase the squirrel just like I do. And they're like, ooh, RV parks. That yeah. sounds interesting. And now you're a multifamily guy and I'm supposed to give you my capital sure. and, and have you do a great <laughs> job on something completely different. And really, yeah. it's the one area that I've been burned a couple of times where I went Switching. with an operator who didn't have experience. So nobody has experience here, right? It's pretty new right. asset class and syndications. So that's a long way of asking, how does your expertise help? And how do I, as a passive, get comfortable investing in you as a new operator in this asset class? Yeah, that is a great question. And I'm going to answer it kind of a backwards way. There are two big barriers to entry to operators going into RV parks, right? And so one of the reasons that prices of parks are still relatively low, and which means returns are high, there's yield there, is because it is hard to transfer, to go from apartments to, or from any asset into RV parks. And, and there's two barriers to entries. One is the debt. There is generally not institutional level debt for a lot of RV parks, and most parks don't qualify for them, right? Which means to be able to finance a park, you have to be able to prove that you have experience and have a track record and have a net worth and have liquidity and all this stuff because you're ultimately going to a local regional bank, credit union, et cetera, and they're going to be doing 
it's a lot more relationship based and they're judging me as the operator. And so you can't just say, here, here's an apartment complex, Fannie Mae, throw it in there, right? Hit the checkbooks, go non-recourse, go. So most of the loans right now are still personally guaranteed by myself and Jeremy, a lot of skin in the game there. And so the debt is not that easy and it's not standardized. And then two, and this is the big one, is there are generally, most of the time, there are no third-party property management services out there. So again, as a sponsor or operator on an apartment complex, I'm not degrading anyone. It's pretty easy to raise capital. It's pretty easy to put stuff in place. And it's pretty easy to hire a third-party property management company to run it. With RVs, that doesn't exist. So what gave us the ability to pivot and what makes us, I think, different than other operators or sponsors is that when we were managing the mobile home parks and we were managing the apartments, we got a little bit fed up with the third-party services. And so we created and we started self-managing with employees and we created a subsidiary property management company that we now manage everything, all of our own assets through. And we just do that. We're not doing any third-party management. And so that in itself allowed us to go buy multiple parks because we had a property management company and we had a system to be able to put in place. What you'll find right now is that most RV parks are owned, they're owner-operated or people only own one or two parks, right? At the most, and they have to basically there. So for us, it was being able to have that system, have it in place, have the team, property managers and et cetera, to be able to go self-manage manage it. Right now, we're managing nine parks at a time and we're continually at that. So that was a long way of saying why I think that we are equipped and able to make that pivot and why we have made that pivot relatively successful is because we had preemptively done a lot of things on the multifamily side to be able to be as vertical as possible and stay internal to the company as possible. Do you love coffee? Have you ever wanted to invest directly in the coffee industry? You can invest now in the number one largest coffee producer in the country of Colombia, the Green Coffee Company. Headquartered in the U.S., they are now Colombia's largest coffee producer and have opened their $100 million Series C funding round to accredited investors. The Green Coffee Company has over 7 million coffee trees and is on track for a 2026 sale or IPO projecting an 11x ROI for investors. Discounts are available for early funding, but there's limited capacity available. To invest, visit legacy-group.co and click the Current Offerings tab. That's the Current Offerings tab at legacy-group.co. Visor provides investors with a secure platform that displays a comprehensive view of all of their holdings on a single holistic dashboard. From real estate syndications to private equity, crypto to traditional investments with AI-driven, unbiased, honest insights to maximize return, Visor is your one place to rule them all. Automating performance tracking, projecting future cash flow, analyzing all your financial documents and much more in one powerful solution, making it easy to follow the money. Sign up for a free 30-day trial now at Pfizer.co. So talk to me about the debt. You get it from the smaller regional banks, credit unions, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. What kind of terms do you get, especially with everyone's talking about interest rates are increasing, inflation, yep. all these it's really slowing down transaction and volume in the multifamily space and other asset classes. So what kind of debt are you able to get? Is there fixed debt available? Is it all variable? Can you just talk about the debt and the terms that you typically see? Yeah. Yeah. Of course the rate is changing, but standard terms would be either a five-year term or 10-year term fixed rate 
Typically, we're getting 20 to 25-year amortizations, 75% loan to cost, loan to value. A lot of times, it's pretty easy for us to build in construction into those loans. Previously, this summer, we reclosed some deals at 4.5% interest rates. Right now, it's probably be 65 to 7.5. So the rate's probably very competitive and very similar to any other rate. And let's see. The big thing is that generally they are going to be full recourse on us, the sponsors. So that's probably the big change, but otherwise pretty similar to probably what you guys are seeing. And you talked about in-house property management. What does that look like at the park? Because I know when we went camping, you'd pull in and some retired person that have their camper set up and they're the one collecting the fees and managing the property. I imagine it's a little bit more than that at the parks that you're talking about, but how does property management work and how much staff do you need at these places and seasonality? Can you just kind of talk about that in general? Sure. So in general, they're all variable. (laughs) Every park (laughs) is different. Every season is different stuff. But no, our typical model is that we're going to have a general manager who is a salaried employee and they're the ones that we're communicating on a daily basis, doing the company meetings. They're, they have P&L responsibilities. They're the ones kind of held to the standard. And then it's up to them to run and facilitate their park in regards to the staff. And so the gentleman that probably checked you in, we would call a camp host. And we do use, we use those a lot. An elderly couple, retired couple, whatever, young, whatever, happens to be living there for a long period of time. They're friendly. They're a great resource. And so they're paid part-time by the hour, but they're under the general manager who then reports back to us or to our president of the property management side. And so the beauty of Zoom, we can do a lot of stuff virtually. So our meetings are virtual. We have company meetings with all the property managers every Tuesday. We're, are you familiar with the EOS system? Traction, the book, Traction. Oh yeah, uh, I've heard the book. Yeah, so we run our company off of the entrepreneurial operating system, Gino Wickman, Traction. So that's, we have a kind of operating system for the business that we have in place. And talk about the parks themselves, because I know there's all kinds of different ones, right? You have a state park that doesn't have a whole lot of amenities, and then you have KOAs that have swimming pools. And now there's all kinds of parks that are adding all kinds of new stuff. So what kind of parks are you looking for? And are they all different? And they are they all seasonal? If you're in Cincinnati, right, you're not yeah. camping in the winter, I don't right. think. We don't think. That is one of our criteria. That's one of our big criteria that we do not buy seasonal parks. So we're buying parks that are open all year. Now, the one in Cincinnati is actually open all year because it's right beside the Ark Encounter, the giant Noah's Ark theme park up there. And it's in Cincinnati. So there's just a ton of long-term demand for construction workers. So that one still is open all year for us. But for us, yeah, we're buying parks that are open all year, which primarily means the south and southeast, south of the freezing line. We focus on buy like true campgrounds. So we do like ones with amenities, pools and the ponds and the streams and the picnic tables and the playgrounds, which means we are not buying in Oklahoma, Texas, Midwest, you'll find a lot of RV parks, quote unquote RV parks that are just parking lots for the oil industry. And so we don't buy those simply because I don't want to be that dependent on an industry that can fluctuate so much. And so most of our parks are about a hundred sites or more. They are on or close to an interstate exit. That's a, one of the big criteria for us. Ideally, they're close to a tertiary or larger market city-wise or equidistance in between them. And we like to buy ones that have some room to expand that we can add sites in pretty quickly. And is that the main value add, adding new sites? Or is it the, I forget what they're called, but those, like the trampolines in the water and the lake and, yeah. and all that other stuff. I mean, 
which is the one that is most common and which is the one that brings the most additional revenue. And again, I know this is a multi-part question, but I assume you're buying from mom and pops who have kind of maybe paid it off and so that they're not adding all this stuff. Is that the business model too? Yeah, I would say the value add from an owner's perspective, investor's perspective is, is generally two-phase for us. So you're correct. In a lot of our sellers are in the 60 plus age range. They either built the park or have been there 20 plus years. They have the mindset that if something is to be done, it must be done perfectly. Therefore, it must be done by them. So no employees a lot of times, and they feel very chained and tied to this park. They're also commonly not utilizing technology very well. And so when we come in and buy a park, one of the first things we do a lot of times, honestly, is it's as simple as like, we got to make sure it's on Google Maps. We got to have a Facebook page. We got to have a website. And then we have an online booking system where people can book online instead of having to call in on the phone. So believe it or not, that is a major value add that we can do literally overnight. And so when we do that, we are commonly taking the nightly rate We bought a park last December. The nightly rate was $37 a night. And we immediately, the next day, changed the nightly rate from $37 to $45 a night. Well, that doesn't sound like much. And it also isn't much to your typical customer. We're talking maybe a $30 change in their stay. But if you think about that, that's a 20 some percent increase in revenue immediately and instantly throughout that next year. And so the beauty that I love of RV parks is there's a lot of small quantity dollar amount changes that always have a big magnitude at the end of the year, just selling firewood or ice or whatever. Like you're making two or three bucks, but you're making it every day all the time. And so that's kind of phase one for us is come in, get the social platforms, get the online presence ready to rock and get rates back up to market. And then we're going to start looking at what can we do infrastructure wise to improve. And the second most desirable amenity besides a pool is Wi-Fi and good Wi-Fi. And so that is the top amenity that we're focused on and making sure we have really good Wi-Fi internet systems throughout the park. And then the next thing is obviously if we can add a site, we will. We'll find some space for it and and put it in. Because at the end of the day, a site probably cost me altogether at the most 10 grand to build a new site if the infrastructure is in place. But that site's probably going to make me about the same amount that year. So it's a one-for-one return on our CapEx going into that. I'm shocked at the price of a building a site. I would think you just take a bulldozer and throw down some gravel and yeah. up the sewer. What's the $10,000? Yeah, I thought the same thing too. It is a bit <laughs> shocking, isn't it? So usually you're going to have some type of engineering involved to be able to just build the thing, whether it's septic, sewer, water. The price of wire nowadays, like a linear foot of, what do we use? I forgot the gauge, but a linear foot of wire is now like 15 bucks a foot for the underground wire. Same for the PEX plumbing. The pedestal now is like three times the price. So there's a lot of material cost that has gone up there, depending on the area, whether we're bringing rock or concrete, et cetera. And 10 grand is probably an overestimate sometimes, but that's a good number to kind of be safe with. So it's amazing how much a parking lot costs very quickly. Yeah, that's crazy. I had no idea. So where do you find these RV parks? I mean, I don't imagine there's a lot of brokers that are around selling these. Do you you just pile the family in an RV and drive around until you find one? Or I'm sure you have better ways of finding them than that. But how do you find these parks? And is it just the older couples that are selling or or is there a real market for this? Yeah, well, the driving around the RV is my favorite way to do it. But no, so internal client capital, we've got eight full-time employees. 
two of those are dedicated to marketing. And then that's, we have a full-time acquisitions director and underwriter. And then she has Tala, who is an underwriter. And then we're outsourcing some VAs, cold calling, skip tracing, all type of stuff. So we're taking that same strategy of a lot of wholesalers would use for single family and putting that in place to find the off-market leads. Of course, there are all the brokers that we're trying to make sure that they know us and vice versa. And I think we've done a great job of that. You would be surprised how many new brokers, even the big brokers, Marcus and Millichamp and all those type of guys have now just stood up an RV investment arm or a group inside of there. And so over the last year, we've really seen there is a lot of brokers now becoming true professional brokers and specializing it, which is a great indicator for us that we're on the right track. Interesting. So we talked a little bit about this, but the inflation, interest rates, gas prices, all that, I have heard that that actually helps RV parks because it's still cheaper to do a vacation in an RV than on an airplane, right? Is that what you're finding? Is And I know there's a backlog of people trying to buy RVs. I mean, is, is the market still growing for this type of travel, even with the economy yeah. the way it is? Yeah, we think so. And so far, the data has shown that. So interesting enough, we have present day experience. So this summer when gas prices went way high, or honestly, they're still pretty high. At that time, we're managing nine parks. We've got some pretty good data across the Southeast. And what we saw was a lot of cancellations. And we kind of, that would be logical. But what happened was the people who were canceled were traveling around 750 miles plus, and they would cancel their trip. And then immediately would get rebooked by someone in the next closest city, a couple hundred miles away. And so at the end of the day, it was still one of our best summers. We had a lot of cancellations and rebookings. It was just people are traveling a lot less distance. That goes back to why or how we buy parks. I love Wyoming. Wyoming's a beautiful state. I love the RV out there, but it would scare me to death to be an RV park owner in Wyoming because it's a long ways from a lot of people. I live in Florida. There's people everywhere. People always go to Florida. People go 10 minutes to go camping here. So that's what gas prices have showed us this summer is that simply people travel less and they make less stops, but they go, they still go. And so if we buy the parks in the right areas, it's fine. We looked at data when we went into this from basically 2005 to 2010 to see what happened in the last recession. And we found some really interesting stats there. The sales of RVs and the brokers and dealers suffered significantly in the eight to 10 mark. Sales more or less went to zero on new RV units, but the parks stayed, kept the same occupancy and they kept essentially the same rates, even with a little bit of an increase. And so again, it goes back to like, once you own it, the RV, you're going to use it. It's still the cheapest way to go vacation. You've got some sunk costs. You're staring at the thing in the front yard. Your kids are saying, when are we going to go camping? At the end of the day, 35 bucks, 45, 55 bucks a night. It's not that big, not to diminish people's heartache during that time period, but people still go on vacation. And so to your point, there's a lot of great data. I wish I had all in my head. We just got came back from the RV conference about next year's plan for people to RV is even increasing, even with in light of a recession. Wow. So we're a group of a community of passive investors. And, right. you know, we kind of look at a deal first through the sponsor, right? We vet the sponsor, then the deal on the market. Sure. So we know how to vet a sponsor for multifamily or self-storage. How do we vet a sponsor like you? How do we make sure that we're investing with the right company in this asset class? What are the questions we ask and what's different about it? How you go about vetting someone? Yeah. First, I would say you don't have too many options. So it should be a pretty quick and easy for process. For now, that's going to change. For now. You're right. 
it probably goes back to the barriers of entry thing. You'll learn a lot about a sponsor very quickly if you ask how they're managing, who's managing, what their thesis or philosophy on property management is. In the RV space, that's going to be very difficult if you don't have some experience there. And similar to the debt, like how you get in the debt, a bank particularly right now is not going to lend to, I'm not going to say it, be very uncommon for a bank to lend to a first-time RV park owner right now. That's probably not going to happen. So those are probably the top two questions. You could always, I mean, you know, it would be great to kind of know if they are an RV or how much they know about RVs specifically. You could visit some parks. I'm trying to think what else would be good. Call references, standard stuff, but yeah. Yeah. And how do we analyze the deal then? Because typically we look at different metrics and we have an idea of what we're looking for. If you threw an RV park in front of me, I mean, I could maybe evaluate it if I wanted to camp there, but sure. I have no idea whether I want to invest in that deal. So how yeah. does a passive investor look at one of your deals? And I don't want to underwrite it from scratch like you do. I vetted you. I trust you. I want to invest with you. Now your deal comes. I just want to look at three or four metrics and make sure that they meet the parameters and then off I go. So what are those metrics or how does a passive evaluate that? Yeah, it's going to be actually very similar. So for us, we do the same thing. It is what is the market rate by either by the night or by the month. Those are the two metrics that we measure. And then what is the market occupancy by the night and by the month? And so sometimes you look at our underwriting performance, there's going to be line items on the income, it would be short-term income, long-term income. And then the third component is we bring in tiny homes and place those on Airbnb. So that'll be cabin rental income, right? And so that's how we're looking at it, right? So you guys would want to to see that. And if you were looking at a deal and they say that they're going to have 95% occupancy on short-term rental on the retail side, that's too much. That's ridiculous. No park is ever that full all the time. And so you're going to see a lot higher vacancy numbers. You should expect to see higher vacancy numbers in the performance underwriting that would maybe scare you as a multifamily investor, but you still look at the gross revenue component of that, right? And so Typically, a lot of times we might underwrite short-term rental, the nightly rate. That might be as low as 60% or 50% occupied, depending on the area. But at the end of the day, that still generates a significant amount of income, conversely with the stuff. So you'd want to look for um, over-aggressive estimates on income via vacancy, because there's, there's just a lot more vacancy. And then, of course, on expenses, RV parks have a lot cheaper taxes generally, a lot cheaper insurance. So those are benefits, but your payroll is usually a good bit more because you're providing a service. You're a hotel that's flat. And so if you see underwriting that has very similar, not much payroll or similar to a multifamily deal, that's probably a red flag too, is that they're not, they're grossly underestimating some expenses. That's great. I mean, it, it's fantastic to have a couple of little nuggets to look for, because honestly, when I'm doing a multifamily, one of those other deals, I'm not looking at the whole thing, every little metric. I'm just picking out a few of my favorites and knowing that if you're expecting vacancy to be around 60%, and it, so if I see someone that's 80 or 85, that gives me a question to ask, like, yeah. why is it so high? Yeah, and there could be a good answer. It definitely depends on the area. If I've got a RV park in Tampa, Florida, right, it's going to be full. No matter what you charge, what you're going to do, it's just the beauty of some locations. So there's some extremes, but if you bring me something that says you're going to be 95% occupied in Oklahoma, I'm going to tell you you're full of it. Yeah. Interesting. So the investment, right? Are you doing a fund or is it single asset? How does that work if someone wants to invest? And is it accredited, non-accredited? Can you talk a little bit about the opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. So right now the opportunity that we have open is a 506C. It's accredited 
investment deal and it is a fund. It is what we call the campfire fund. So it's a $20 million fund that we're raising capital for that has two classes. So you can mix and match and figure out what makes you better. So the two in classes have different return structures. The simple one is an 11% preferred return and it's the first 11%, but then that's capped off. So you get 11% a year and you're happy. The second class is very typical to a multifamily one where it's a 7% preferred return and then a 60-40 split, 60% to the investor and 40% back to us. So you can choose either of those. You can mix and match, et cetera. What else is important there? What about the minimum? Oh, yeah, sorry. Minimum for either class is 50000 We are taking a limited amount of the first class, the 11% preferred return. So that is close to being full when the second one is open. And where do they sit in the capital stack relative to each other? Meaning, does the class that gets the 11% get paid first before the other class? Yeah, they are the top of the capital stack. They're okay. true preferred. Okay, perfect. So the last question I like to ask is, what is a great podcast that you like to listen to? Whew, honestly, I don't really listen to podcasts that much. But You can give uh, me a book instead if, oh, if, you're, okay. a, book. if you're a reader. Um, that's fine too. You ever read Pitch Anything, Oren Claff? I haven't read it yet. I've heard about it. Yeah, well. We're not doing video, but there you go. <laughs> okay. So pitch anything, Orrin Claff, a lot about just the actual chemistry that's happening in your brain when you're dealing with deals and negotiating and stuff like that. So enjoyed that a lot. And yeah, I don't listen to podcasts too much. That's all right. Well, you have to listen to this one when it comes out. Yeah. And so we'll put that book in the show notes, but if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way they can do that? Sure. So our website is climbcapital.com, C-L-I-M-B capital.com. And my email is robert at climbcapital.com. And of course, we're on all the social platform stuff. You can find us there. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This was fascinating. We appreciate you. Hey, thanks, Jim. This is awesome. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us slash LFI. Hi, this is Zach Haptonstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we partner with investors like you to purchase large apartment buildings that we renovate to increase the value and create a profit margin for our investors through monthly passive cash flow distributions and profits on sale. We're a vertically integrated company specializing in the Phoenix, Arizona and Dallas, Texas markets with over 200 plus full-time W-2 employees who are focused on making sure your investment is taken care of. To learn more about Rise48 Equities multifamily investments, schedule a call with me at rise48equity.com backslash invest. I really enjoyed that conversation talking about RV parks and I love how he went on an RV trip and found an RV park and bought it. Uh, that's super interesting that he got into this asset class partly because he's interested in 
RVing and he does it himself with his family. And that's kind of like the Peter Lynch way of looking at things is invest in what you know, right? And that's what Robert is doing here. He's RV park guy. He traveled around with his family. And so that's what he's investing in. So I really like that. And also the, the competition, how everyone's doing multifamily. And that also led him to a new asset class. And he's looking at multifamily and even self-storage now as a commodity. And it's always harder to make money investing in a commodity than it is in something unique and different, which is definitely where RV parks are now. And the barriers to entry he talked about, the debt, you know, you're not going to get true institutional debt. It's going to be a little bit different. You're going to have to work harder for it. Anytime you have to work harder for something, there's going to be fewer people that are willing to do that. So other people might look at it and say, I just can't find the debt and give up where somebody like Robert is going to dig in and find that small community bank that is willing to lend. And so I think that's important. The other barrier to entry he talked about is property management, where it just is a challenge. You really have to understand the RV park business and get the property management right. And that's kind of the barriers to entry that that keeps this from being a commodity. Yet, I'm sure there is going to be a lot more people getting into this space because it is becoming more popular and more well-known. And for the vetting, the sponsor, he said that also that you got to check how they're managing, how they're doing property management, how they're doing the debt. So not only are those barriers to entry, but those are the questions you should be asking the sponsor to make sure that they have that handled. And it was really interesting. You know, one of the metrics that he looks at is vacancy and multifamily. We're used to pretty high vacancy rates in the 90s. And for him, that's a red flag in RV park. So if you see a park that has vacancy that's 90 or 95, that means ask a question. And as he said, if it's not in Tampa, if it's in Oklahoma, then you know that's going to be tough to do. If it's in somewhere else, it might be different. So those are just extra things to look at. And it is helpful as you're evaluating these deals to have a few metrics, because right now it's such a new asset class that really finding the right partner, as with everything, is going to be the most important part. But it's really hard to evaluate these on an individual basis, which also makes the fund model I think nice for an asset class like this. So you're not just all tied into one park and worried about the analysis of that one park, but log of averages get the results from multiple parks. So very interesting asset class, going to keep an eye on it. That's all we have for this time. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.